0: an enjoyable time of the year, and the incredible meaning that these days have, if we focus on it, can be a big springboard for us and help us And the battle is ahead. We look out today, and we see around us a world in distress, great, horrible distress, Just this morning, I heard that they had captured 10 members of ISIS on the Mexican border to America. How many did they miss? I don't know. How many will there be tomorrow that come across? I do not know. Will there be some? They caught 10 today. I expect there were some yesterday, and there'll be some tomorrow. And they're doing nothing about shutting the border. This very morning, 400 workers in an airline for a company that cleans airplanes for airlines went on strike because of fear of Ebola. It is a word that strikes fear into people all over the world now. And we cringe when we hear that another might come down with it in this nation, one having The report just died in Dallas as a result of Ebola. I know that's only one, but how many does it take before panic sets in? I had to kid Gordon between services about whether or not his wife was sniffling and snuffling and had flu symptoms, whether or not he was quarantining her for 21 days, and whether he's going to stay there with her. People will, though, when they start getting a cold this winter, or flu symptoms. There's one word that will come to their mind immediately. Can't help it. We know that it could happen, and it could happen fast, and it could happen here. Because it already is, in a very small way, happening here. They're flying people in to treat them here. They're allowing people to fly on airplanes by the thousands daily from infected nations into this country, and now they're just beginning to say, we're going to start looking them over a little to see if they might have symptoms, or maybe take their temperature. I don't know whether they use the same thermometer on all of them or not, but who knows? So it's a world that is living increasingly in fear of war, in fear of lack of water and drought famine and pestilence and disease and those things that we've read about even recently in sermons from Matthew 24 and Luke 21 it's a world that needs something it needs some answers from somewhere people turn to their governments for answers and the governments have no answers because The murder rates, the suicide rates, the poverty rates, the disease epidemic rates continue to climb and climb. And increasingly people who might have been middle class are becoming poverty stricken and going on all kinds of government assistance. Paid for by whom? Well, really no one. They just add digits on the computers at the Fed and the government and we go more and more trillions of dollars into debt. Debt that we can never pay. What about you when you have gotten yourself in a bad financial situation? Did it concern you? Did it bother you? Did you worry about it? Did you have fears about it? How you were going to pay the bills? What you were going to do? Where you might be able to cut back and make ends meet? Or, well, maybe like a lot of Americans, so oh, well, so what, I've got another piece of plastic, I can just go ahead and do what I want. But then somewhere there has to come the nagging thought, am I living beyond my means, and can I take care of the things that I'm supposed to take care of? So we're in a world that has increasing fear, worry, and concern And the world that we, if we're aware at all, realize, as was mentioned this morning, is about ready to destroy mankind from the face of the earth. We have the weapons to do it, both nuclear and biological, and chemistry, or chemical. We have so many, many ways now to destroy mankind, and we are polluting the earth to where it will turn and destroy us itself if we don't do something about it. Would somebody care to give me an answer from the news, from the magazines, from television, or the computer on what can be done to remedy the problems that we face today? Some scientist somewhere will give you a little theory about how what I've just discovered is going to fix everything. You don't believe it, neither, do you? A world is dying before our very eyes. This world is a lot different today than it was when I was a boy. A whole lot different. I used to marvel at Herbert Armstrong, who was born in the 1880s, somewhere right in there, I think. And how he had come through, essentially, the discovery of the automobile, of steam engines and trains, planes were invented, first flew in 1903, and he was already a young man at that time. And then he had his own jet airplane that would go around the world very, very quickly by the time he was an old man. During his time, space travel began. I didn't know what a computer was when I was a boy. There was none. There was barely television. And I'm not that old. And life was a lot safer. You could actually have your kids running all over town and not fear for them. We could walk to school. We could play in the park. We could walk to the ballpark, play ball. We could do all kinds of things then that you wouldn't dare let your children do today. It's just a different world and it's getting worse every day. You know where I'm going with this. There's only one answer to the world's problems. That's God. The only answer there is for anybody. He's been working with men for about 6,000 years now. And he has been working toward a bride for his only begotten and now born son. And he wanted the number of people that would comprise that bride to be 144,000 exactly in a resurrection or a change, if you're still alive, when his son returns. It has been estimated that there have been about 60, 70 billion people who've lived on the face of the earth since Adam and Eve. No one knows. It's just an estimate of counting generations and reproductive cycles and various things. But, let's say each one of those 60, 70 billion, had a resume and an application attached to that resume to be one of the individuals chosen to be the bride of the Lamb. They all turned their resumes in and their applications fully filled out for the job. Roughly one in 600,000, using those numbers, would be chosen our chances to all mankind of being chosen to be one of those individuals so honored to be the bride of the son of God is about one in six hundred thousand what are you willing to lay on that what are you willing to bet out of six hundred thousand others just like you you will be chosen Is there any way to improve the odds if you take on the challenge? I want to make this feast and the things that I have to say in it very positive, but I wanted to lay a little groundwork here at the beginning of this first sermon to just bring us face to face with the stark reality that is facing us in the next few years on this earth. If Ebola doesn't get loose, something else will. If this war doesn't start, that one will. It's all predicted, all set ahead of time by God who knows. And he says that very shortly now, if he doesn't intervene no flesh will be saved alive. Everybody dead. That's where man will take us. That's where politicians will take us. It's where governments will take us. It's where our school teachers will take us. It's the best man can do with the present ruler of this world. The very best we can come out on this is everybody dead. That's where we're headed. There's no alternative. It's written in stone. If we don't get some help from somewhere We're finished We're done And that's this century And it's the first half of this century And that's pushing I'll not go out any further On a limb of that Hosea 4 verse 1 Hear The word of the eternal Listen up folks Hear what God has to say in Hosea here written about the end of the age. For the eternal has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. In other words, God is not happy. He is upset. He is angry. There's a controversy. There's a breach. There's a problem. Because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. Now that's an indictment, number one, of Ephraim, this land. Because Hosea is written in the context, for the most part, of the nation of Ephraim. It includes all Israel and Judah. But Ephraim is mentioned over and over since Ephraim is the firstborn, as Jeremiah 31 says. God has rearranged things and made that happen. And since we are Ephraim, this indictment is first and foremost to us today. this day on which a white cop near St. Louis shot a black teenager again. Preliminary reports are that the boy fired three shots at him, and that the officer fired 17 shots back at the teenager. So there are riots beginning again there. And the leader of those who are stirred up about this said that if the one that did this the last time isn't prosecuted, there will be murder in the streets. There is no truth, no mercy, no knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, They break out, and blood touches blood. If you watch the news, what do you hear about? Fraud, lying, cheating, stealing, murder. Pretty grim. It's depressing to watch just the news of who's done what to whom. You read the entertainment news instead so you can have a little levity. Who's divorcing who, and who's slipping around on who, and what's going on in Hollywood. It's everywhere you look. It's a sick society from head to foot. Therefore shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwells therein shall languish. Everyone who lives there will languish. You know what languish means? It means to feel very, very bad, very sad, very let down, depressed, frustrated, angered, unhappy. With the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven, we have millions and millions of fish and birds and animals dying. As we sit here today, all over the world, the oceans are being emptied of life. The fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. It's happening. Right now, today. Yet, let no man strive, nor reprove another, for your people are as they that strive with the priest. We can blame each other. We can accuse each other. We can frustrate each other. That doesn't do any good any more than wailing with the priest will do any good. Therefore shall you fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. Now we've already seen this happen in the church, even though it's not completely dead yet, but it's getting close. And our mother Israel is very, very sick with cancer, diabetes, heart disease, Ebola, and whatever it is, 68, 70, and 48, and whatever else comes with it. I'm just picking numbers. i got to put a number on all these things as they crop up now, and they will happen more and more. Verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you, that you shall be no priest to me, seeing you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. As they were increased, they sinned against me, and I will change their glory into shame. There's where we are. The glory of this nation is being turned to shame. America has had the strongest, most robust, and the greatest, biggest economy on the face of the earth for over 150 years now. But just this week, China has eclipsed us. We now have the second greatest economy on the earth. Their production is greater, they produce more of everything than we do and we're going to go from 2nd to 20th real fast and 200th real fast our mother is being destroyed before our very eyes for lack of knowledge for having rejected the law of God let's go from there to Proverbs 29 verse 18 Proverbs 29 This is a scripture you're all familiar with. When there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keeps the law happy is he. Now we just read in Hosea that we've rejected the law of God in his way, and therefore we are being destroyed, our mother before us, our whole society, and it will be made absolutely worthless, useless, and will disappear America will no longer exist it's diving fast and the dive will not stop until we hit bottom and are either dead or in captivity that's where it will go now, where there is no vision the people perish let's turn that coin over where there is vision, the people will live. Where people understand and respond and follow through, they will live. It's axiomatic. If one produces death, the other will produce life. And it even says that in the second half of the verse. "If you keep the law of God, you will be happy. In the middle. Of the destruction that is coming. I want to focus a little bit on vision. It's number 2377 in the Hebrew, Strong's number. The first definition is ecstatic state. Now, that's kind of a hard to understand phrase, but it means a state that is. Uh, brought about by the result of exciting information from an outside source, in this case, God. Where something comes directly from God that throws light on the situation that we are in and helps us understand what needs to be done and how it needs to be done in order to come through successfully. Now, if you look at the visions of the Bible, go to Isaiah 1 1, I won't turn there, but it starts out the visions of Isaiah, the prophet. God gave him this ecstatic state, if you will, or this inside information, this message revealed from a higher power through different than just word of mouth, let's say. And Isaiah was to write it down. For what purpose? To let people know that what they were doing and the way they were living and thinking was not pleasing to God, and that punishment would result, but that if they would repent and change their ways, life would get better, and instead of the cursing that they would be under, they would in turn receive blessing. And he goes on then, through some of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, to explain the ultimate state that will occur, and we'll get to that during this feast. At least that's my goal and objective. To see some of those wonderful promises that God makes through Isaiah and others, it will happen with us and for us if we simply commit ourselves to God. So those visions are given for our benefit. A vision B is something you see receive in the night, again implying from a higher power. And often the visions did come in terms of uh, a dream or a of something that came during the night. Not always, but that's part of the definition of the Hebrew word. Thirdly, as an oracle of prophecy via divine communication. Something that God on high reveals that we might benefit from. Visions generally in the Bible are very positive. And he tells us here in the end days, in the book of Joel, chapter 2, that, and it's toward the end of the chapter, that there will come a time in this age when our young men and maidens and old men and various ones will have visions and dreams, messages from God, just as we're defining here. Small and large, children, adults, old people, doesn't matter. Not confined at that point to a prophet, a priest, or a minister, but to the congregation at large. But This is something that will happen. I am sure that it will be exhilarating, thrilling, exciting. And if you have such a thing happen to you, you will want to tell it to everybody you know because you'll be so excited that you got a message directly from God. Can you imagine And one of the fears that might enter your mind when you hear three or four of these occur that someone comes here and tells you about will be that you won't get one. Everybody's getting one but me. Hey God, how about me? I haven't had one. Everybody's had one but me. Perhaps you can do something Not to find yourself in that boat. Perhaps you can respond to God in such a way that He would favor you with such things when those things begin to happen to a lot of people. Think about that one. It's kind of like the dream many people have had in this era of the church of the first resurrection. And they see some rising from the air, and they can't get the lead out of their pants. They see people ascending to meet Christ, and they can't jump. They can't get off the ground. That's a scary dream. But there have been a lot of people in this age that have had it. And probably back in the Apostles' day as well. Because why? That's something that we are programmed every week week in and week out, to look forward to. It is the goal and the purpose, as was explained to us this morning, to be a part of the kingdom of God and to become spirit. And it is so deeply entrenched then within our minds that it's something we would occasionally then perhaps have a dream about. And the human fears that we have can come out in dreams, fears of falling, fears of being killed, fears of accidents, all kinds of fears come out in dreams. But a fear of remaining on this earth as a human being to be thrown in the lake of fire can become a pretty big fear too. A vision then, the fourth definition is as the title of a book of prophecy, such as the visions of Amos, or, or the visions of Isaiah, or the, the various prophets of God that he gave visions to, to educate people. And those visions were almost invariably of some future event, or events that would be at the end of the age, and it would point to people from the time that they were given all through the rest of history toward the climax and the fulfillment of God's purpose when the mystery of God shall be revealed at the first resurrection. And then we'll fully understand what it was he was talking about, about changed from mortal to immortal. It's coming, and it isn't far off now. But, just as a strictly odds thing, your chances in mine are about 1 out of 600,000, give or take, more or less, depending on the numbers you use. Yours, thankfully, are much higher than that. Much higher. You have already been selected out of those billions. For an interview. The rest have not. Very few have already been given an interview process and signed their name to the contract saying, I want this job. Through repentance and baptism, laying on of hands, and the reception of God's Holy Spirit to help qualify them so that the resume begins to look a whole lot better. That puts you in a class way, way beyond most people. I didn't try to run the odds on that, but it would make you one out of multiple millions. It would have to. Because God only called so far roughly about 150,000 even in this end time work I don't know whether he called that many in the Apostles' day or not there was a brief period right after the Holy Spirit came there in Acts 2 in which 5,000 or 7,000 people were converted in on. one day because of the miracles and all that they saw and heard that died off very quickly and then there came a great falling away that the Apostles and the Apostle John especially saw, where people gave up, got tired, quit, got distracted, or whatever, and forgot their focus on what is truly important and why we're here. And in this age, we have had the very same thing happen. I don't know how many he selected from which era, I would guess, from the Old Testament, from Adam until Christ was born, that the number might not be more than 50 who have their name written in the book of life to be in the first resurrection. There might be a few hundred. I don't know. The Bible simply doesn't say. But it does give the officers of Moses and David, and a few, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from that era. But by and large, not many people ever truly obeyed God. That is Israel's history. And salvation was not offered in the way that it was offered from Christ's sacrifice, death, and resurrection as it is now. Maybe there were 100,000 called in the apostolic era. Maybe not. There may have been that many called in this era. There was used feast attendance there again, which included children and unconverted mates and uh, grandmas and whatever else. So how many have been truly called? I don't know. But he's called enough to select 144,000 out of the whole number of people who've marched across the face of the earth. there's some vision that we need to understand, to grasp of how great an opportunity we have. I read a story just the other day about a young man. He's 6'2", weighs about 280 pounds. And he's a millionaire. He wasn't. Just a few years ago, he grew up in a ghetto, a young black man. He grew up big, and he grew up strong. And he was drafted into the National Football League and handed a contract that made him a millionaire. And the other night, he went to a bar and got drunk, and started using his hands in places his hands did not have permission to go. Now he is suspended without pay from his millionaire's job, may or may not ever get it back, and where will his wife go now? I don't know. There are quite a few who take that route. There's been another one in the news that, beat up his girlfriend, now wife, in an elevator, lost his job, his reputation, and many, many millions of dollars that were due him. You see, we have human beings in this world who are on the cusp of some kind of success, and for one reason or another, they find a way to blow it, and then their life is in tatters and torn world. Happens to all kinds of people. Happens to people in the financial world who are making good money, but they find a way with a Ponzi scheme of some kind to make even more millions and cheat others out of their livelihoods. And they wind up sometimes in prison. The biggest and best of them are still running our financial situation and our government today. judges, congressmen, and on and on. They've had a chance and blown it. You have a chance today, as you sit here, class, to be the wealthiest, most important individuals who have ever lived on the face of the earth. The most powerful the most intelligent, the most gifted of all people who have ever walked the earth. That is set before us. That is the purpose and the goal that we sit for here for today on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles of God. Now I can tell stories about athletes or business people and how they had incredible opportunities and you just shake your head sometimes and think, how could they do that? Take Hollywood. They make a few films or TV sitcoms and make millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. They cut a record or two and it goes to number one and suddenly they can own a jet airplane because people sop up the music that they're singing or whatever it is they're singing and then they get hooked on cocaine or something else and sometimes wind up committing suicide because their lives are so miserable, frustrated, empty, and dead and they decide they might as well themselves be dead so all that success all that paparazzi and all the acclaim means nothing and it's gone and a gunshot, or a jump off a bridge, or whatever. Overdose. The wealthy, the successful, the ones we looked up to, the ones that were in the newspapers and on the TV, gone, just like that. And we we can look and we can say, how sad. How sad to waste such a talent, such ability. In some cases, it is true ability. How sad it would be for you and me to get sidetracked in some direction, any direction, and blow this one. This is the biggest thing there is, or ever will be. You've already turned in your resume. You've already signed the papers. The company... What you are crying for has told you the job is yours if you will just follow through with your responsibilities. They've given us approval. They've written our name in the Book of Life and said this one will be there unless they take themselves out by some stupidity lack of focus or direction that they take. Wouldn't that be sad? Let's go to Zechariah 14. It was quoted this morning. I want us to realize what is at stake here. If somehow, someway, I can communicate to you, I mean you, every one of you, what you're here for, and get it through, and get it across, perhaps deeper, more emotionally, closer to your soul than ever before you have. What would be wrong with that? What would be wrong to take your history with the truth of God, whether it be a year, or five, or ten, or forty, or fifty, or sixty? What would be wrong if there was somewhere, somehow, God could inspire Gordon, and Nelson, and Terry, and me to drive the lesson deeper so that you get it better. What would be wrong with that? What would be wrong with you opening up your heart and your mind and your soul to hear these words better than you have ever heard them before? To let them sink deeper? What would be wrong with it being the best feast ever for a change? We used to say it after every feast. And maybe it was the best one ever till then because it was that one. And then we had the post-feast blues and depression and discouragement because from emotional high sometimes comes an emotional low. And best feast ever could turn into a pretty depressing October, November, December if we weren't careful. What if we concentrated just a little more and didn't let our minds wander quite as much and read these scriptures and let them sink in so that we could take what we hear here this week with us every day this coming year and dedicate ourselves more deeply to God, His purpose in us, and to making our calling and election sure. Now, I already told you, we've been approved through the sacrifice of the Son of God. And our name if we're to be in the first resurrection, which is what we've applied for, is already written down in the reading book. That's all the book of life has been offered so far too, is to those who will be the bride of Christ. These are the first fruits, no more, no less. Your name's already there, brethren, if you've been properly baptized, repented, and received the gift of the Holy Spirit with the laying on of hands and have begun that march toward the kingdom of God. Only you can take it out. But be assured you can if you don't make your calling and your election sure. You have been called. You have been elected or selected and written down. And he says, beware lest any man take your crown. You have been assigned one, okay? I don't know how many gems and jewels are in it yet. And God doesn't either. In the day when he makes up those crowns, as Malachi 3 tells us, those jewels will be included for those who speak often of these things and follow through. We're selected. We've got a boarding pass. We've got a ticket. Written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. There's no computer crash that's going to get rid of that. There's no hacker out there who can break into it And take your name out. It's written in the word of God, with the promise of God. And it's indelible. Can't be taken away. So make it sure. Make sure it happens. Do what you need to do. Change what you need to change. To make it happen. You know, we'll go a long way sometimes when somebody gives us a promise, won't we? I remember times when my grandfather promised me something. Fifty cents an hour, if I would drive his tractor. I drove that tractor day and night. I remember waking up just before I hit the fence at the end of the turn rows many, many times. Because he'd promised me 50 cents an hour for every hour I sat on that steel seat on that Ford 8N. I believed him. When my granddaddy told me he'd give me 50 cents an hour, I believed it. I even believed it when he told me if I'd take that little mechanical stick with a hole on the end of it and chop the weeds out of the cotton... He'd give me 50 cents an hour for that. And I was out there at 2 o'clock in the afternoon when it was 105, 10 degrees there in West Texas on the staked plains because I believed my granddaddy. And you know what? He gave me 50 cents an hour. Did the same thing to my cousin. I began to trust a little bit. But sometimes people might do what people say they will do. But I've since learned it's fairly rare. You know what people tell each other before they get married? All the things they're going to do for each other. All the things that they will be. All the vows and promises that they will make. That this is how I will present myself this is how I will act. This is how I will treat you. And this is going to be until death does its part because I will love you eternally and I will cross the widest oceans and climb the highest mountains for you. You believed me. You believed her. I've said those things myself. And I've fallen Short of many of the things that I wanted to be and thought I could be. And I haven't been everything to my wife that I wanted to be and still want and need to be. I let her down. I'm not what I want to be. And neither are you. Everything you want to be. but we can get a lot closer than we are. We can overcome. We can grow. I have learned that human beings can change. They usually change rather slowly because they're selfish to the core and they want what they want and they want it when they want it and how they want it. And it's very, very difficult to get them off that and to have them love their neighbor as themselves and God above everything. That is a very, very difficult thing for human beings to achieve. And it is that innate selfishness that has brought us to the cusp of self-destruction. But you and I have been shown a better way. There's a way of give and a way of get, that old man said hundreds, thousands of times to the church, to the leaders of the world, and it has fallen on mostly deaf ears. You and I believe it. And we agree that the give way of life is better than the get way. We know it produces better results. It's just so hard to be that way. To respond to the spirit and the words of our God in heaven. It's hard for us to do that. But we're here to focus on it this week. Because this week pictures that time when the kingdom of God will spread around the world and everybody will obey the laws of God and there will be peace, harmony, bliss, happiness, joy. And that will be the state of the world. And we will be threatened with life eternal instead of total destruction. Everyone on earth during the millennium is going to have a firm belief that they can be in the kingdom of God and live forever. They won't be wishy-washy about it. They won't be discouraged and depressed about it. They will have 144,000 living beings who have already achieved it. And those 144,000 with their husband will have incredible influence over the inhabitants of the earth during this coming thousand years, beginning very shortly now. And having seen our success, they will believe it can happen. They'll have a better, easier time of believing it can happen than you and I do right here today. They will not have Satan the devil influencing them through the very airwaves. It just won't be there. Their own human nature will be caught up short when they begin to think wrong. And someone will say, this is the way you walk in it. Don't go that way. Oh, okay. They're going to have more help than you and I have. By far. And success breeds success. You and I have a lot, lot rougher role to hope. A lot more trials, a lot more enemies than they will have. There will not be no subculture of criminality and adultery and lying and fraud and cheating and thieving and killing. It just won't be there. It won't be going on. It won't be on television. It won't be on the radio. It won't be on the music that kids listen to. That stuff will all just go away. Totally. And the only influence they will see is good influence. 99 point whatever percent of everything you see and experience. On this earth, this very day, is upside down, backward, sinful, ungodly, and negative. That's just the way the whole world is, and headed for the death of everyone. No wonder it's depressing to watch the news. We're under incredible pressure, brethren. to go just the opposite of the way the world is going. I was headed for Zechariah 14. It was read this morning, but let's read it again, verse 16. It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations, didn't I say the whole world, but all the people, all the people that are left after the 90-plus percent Destruction of humankind, which is about to happen. The New World Order people have stated, many of them, in many venues, that they want to reduce the population of the earth by 90%, and that is their goal and their purpose. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This is the statements from Rockefeller and Kissinger and various people. Leaders. Well, maybe that's pushing it. Office holders, then. They're not leaders, unless it's leaders of destruction. That's their goal and their purpose, and it has been planted there by Satan the devil. And they're going about it right now as we sit here, plotting, planning, conniving, and developing ways to kill most of us. And it will be accomplished. The words of your Bible say that. So that when that is done, everyone that is left is going to do what? Everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, the enemies of God and Christ and his people and his bride. Everyone that is left shall even go up from year to year, to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody on earth is going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. How many are today? Just a few thousand out of six, seven billion. Just a few thousand. Thirty, Forty thousand, maybe. There aren't many left. And many of them are doing it on the wrong day, the wrong time, and in a wrong manner. They're not really worshipping the king the lord of hosts. They're worshipping the beach. They're worshipping Disney World. They're worshipping the buffet lines on a cruise line somewhere. Or the movies. Or something apart from God. Country music in Branson or Whatever. It's what they're there to do. And before the closing song, before the closing prayer, they head out with their tickets to go to a fine restaurant or to a musical show or the beach. Some of them wear their bathing suits under their clothes, so all they have to do when they get to the beach, hurry, hurry, is strip off and hit the beach. Are they going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and worship the King, the Lord of Hosts? Or are they going to entertain themselves for the most part? With God as a side dish. What's their entree? And what's their side dish? There are very, very few of the few tens of thousands who are even trying to keep the feast today who have on the forefront of their minds to worship the King the Lord of hosts wouldn't it be nice if every one of us here adopted that approach to this feast yes we can spend our second tithe, which we've saved for the feasts, for fine foods, for drinks that we might not afford most of the time and probably don't need all of, all the time. We can enjoy these physical things because the physical world and the world tomorrow is going to be a place with great physical blessing, incredible physical blessings. And we're here to picture that, and we do it in part physically. And we fellowship with each other in joy and excitement, and enjoy the good parts of each other's personalities during this time, because it pictures peace and joy and happiness in the kingdom of God without negativity, without depression and discouragement, without offense, given or taken, because we are merciful and kind and patient and loving with each other, because we're here to portray as a type of a time when there will be peace all over the earth and no one will fight or make war or create havoc or offend one another as a goal and a purpose and pretty much accomplish it we're here to be a witness of that we're here to accomplish it in the best possible way we can to control our tempers, our attitudes our selfishness for hey it's just eight days and I already told you the first one's nearly over Only seven more, and they're going to go so fast. Can we just for eight days control our attitudes, control our emotions, and make this a peaceful, wonderful, exciting, thrilling, inspiring, Feast of Tabernacles as we worship the King, the Lord, our God. We don't dare, and there's context, spend so much time eating, drinking, and just fellowshipping that we forget God because during this eight days we need to pray more than we normally do. We need to devote more time to this Word, in sermons and otherwise, than we normally do. You see, normally you have to go to work. Normally you have to drive back and forth to work. Normally you have all these things in life that you have to deal with. Here you have eight days of freedom freedom from those responsibilities for the most part. You're not working. You're not commuting. You're not punching the clock. The time is available to mix in good fellowship with brethren, to enjoy the second tie that you've saved for food and drink, and to spend more time with God. It's here. It's now. And pretty soon, everyone on the earth is going to be doing what you and I are going to do this week. put God first. In our lives for eight days. Use this extra time that we have to devote more of it to Him than we do in daily life. And to devote more time to each other than we do in daily life because it's available. Just eight days to picture a time of universal peace and the kingdom of God. Isn't it marvelous that our God and creator in heaven has set aside this time Leviticus 23 and other scriptures in Deuteronomy and places we've read this morning that Gordon brought out. Isn't it nice that way back then he set this all apart with people who were doing animal sacrifices, who didn't understand really the spiritual meaning and value and what it could amount to someday. They just had to go out there and take a lovely little lamb a goat. And when they're young, they are so cute. They're so warm. They're so sweet. And they had to cut it straight. And rejoice before God. They had to cut it apart. And lay it on an altar. And burn it. And rejoice. We have a little goat. Just a miniature. It's almost grown now. Marla fed it on the bottle because we got it when it was young. Cutest little thing you'll ever see. Well, Vicki thinks hers is cuter, but she don't know nothing. It follows us around like a puppy dog. And when we go in the house and shut the door, it bleeds and cries because it can't see us. And it jumps on my golf cart and rides around with me. And if it doesn't get on, it runs behind me and runs back with me and follows me everywhere I go like a puppy dog. Sweetest little thing. I am so thankful to God in heaven that I don't have to go out here this evening and stretch it out and slice its throat as a sacrifice to God. I'm so thankful I don't have to do that. I'm thankful God came to the earth and sacrificed his life so that I don't have to sacrifice my sheep and my goats and watch their blood drain on the ground. I'm so thankful for all the vile and rotten and wretched things that I have thought and done in my life. Are washed away in the blood of Christ. They're no longer there. They don't exist anymore. I can remember them if I try, sometimes if I don't. Some of them I've forgotten entirely. But they're not on the record anymore. They're wiped out. They're gone. Yeah, people might want to dig them up, but hey, they can't. They can't take my name off the book of life. Only I can. And God can only scratch it out if I request it of Him. By the way I live from now on. From today on. Now you're in the exact same boat. The past is forgotten. We're living for the future here today. And we've already been told the job is ours. And we're here to rejoice in that for these eight days and rejoice that someday, after we have been actually given the job, that we can then share with all of our friends and our relatives, past, present, and future, who didn't make it through the odds yet, Will be in the millennium or great white throne judgments. And we will be there to help them and encourage them and explain things to them when they have a humble, meek, open mind that they don't have today. Don't bring that religion up to me. Their attitude will change. Because we're right, brethren. And the crown is there waiting. Let's worship the king the Lord of hosts, and put him first for these next seven days. And build treasure in heaven so that the jewels can be put in our crown.